Did you know that kinky wellness is integral to your self-development? Hi, my name is Dana Shergill. I'm a kinky wellness coach and owner of The Partition, home of kinky wellness. Each Monday, I bring on a guest to discuss why kinky sexual wellness deserves a seat in the wellness conversation. You can catch my solo shows on Wednesdays, but let's jump into it. Hey, and welcome back. Today, we welcome Andres Barry Look, MD, to discuss men's sexual health from how it works for guys to how it affects them and partners when it doesn't. We talk about the stigma of erectile function and prostate health as an expression for masculinity and how that plays into why many guys deal with chronic progressive erectile dysfunction or decline along with prostate issues in silence. But don't worry because at the end, he will be sharing a revolutionary technology that he works with directly that stimulates the body to rebuild itself and how amazing it is at regenerating erectile function, including curing Peroni disease. And we compare the risks to this technology to the risks of taking the blue pill, hormone therapy, injections, or surgery. So let's start to unpack this educational field episode by welcoming Andres to the show. So welcome, Andrew, to the show. How are you? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Well, we have a lot to get covered. I'm actually really excited about this topic. I believe it's knowledge that needs to get out more. So I do think that we should just start with the first question, which is what is erectile dysfunction and are there different types of them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, in fact, the whole term erectile dysfunction is really a constellation of all sorts of different things. Uh, the term itself kind of is misleading because it lets us believe that it's either all or nothing kind of situation when uh, and then most guys kind of end up going on thinking, well, I don't have complete dysfunction, so it must be something else. I'm fine. And we kind of ignore our problems. But erectile dysfunction is really just a constellation of anywhere from decrease in function, having trouble maintaining an erection, to anything around having a scar tissue in the penis or anything blocking the blood flow, pretty much interfering with our ability to maintain or getting an erection in the first place. Oh, wow. So that would be a misconception, I think, that even from my end. So it goes from if you can't use it to its full capacity and everything under that umbrella. Exactly. So what would be some other misconceptions or myths around this specifically? Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest ones would be that we all assume that, you know, we're supposed to lose it or lose that function as we get older, that we're supposed to slow down and not be as functional or energetic in the bedroom as we used to. And that just kind of happens with age. That's a huge misconception. And it has a lot more to do with our vascular system, with our overall vascular health than anything else. And again, we're kind of fed these ideas through social media, through, through the, the overall persona that, that men have, that, that men are supposed to kind of uh, live up to. And at the same time, again, we're told that you know, that, uh, that we're supposed to get older and weaker as we age. And, and, and that kind of plays into uh, how men end up living and, and dealing with it on their own. Wow. Like that actually seems like a pretty big issue across the board with health in general, this idea, especially when it comes to sex, that it's, you reach a certain age and then it's all downhill apparently from there, which is certainly not true. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we can, we can look at a lot of different relationships, and a lot of different people and see that, they can stay active and energetic and, and, and have an exciting sexual life even into their you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s. What it really takes is, is, a, is a psychological, emotional, and, uh, and physical attraction to somebody to really have all those components that you need to really enjoy yourself uh, in somebody's presence, right? So I think for men, unfortunately, one of the most important things is our ability to function sexually with respect to our, our, our erectile health. And often when that starts to fail, we lose that motivation to engage with our partners. We lose the motivation to seek out new partners, assuming that, you know, everything's going downhill and, and there's just no point in trying. So it plays a lot into our, into our mental health as well. And, uh, and that's what, that's why it's so important to really have these conversations. Absolutely. So when it comes to men and coming to honesty and like coming to you, is there a lot of fear that people have when speaking about this or nervousness, kind of like they take it personally, like as if they've done something wrong and that's just not the case. 
that's definitely a big part of it. Uh, a lot of guys really don't even realize that there's a problem. I think it goes back even deeper than that. Uh, when, when guys get to the point where they realize there's, there might be a problem. Yes. They definitely have a hard time discussing it, sharing it. Uh, nobody really talks about it. Our friends all assume and make it seem like their erectile health is perfect. So every single guy is looking at everybody else thinking that they're the only ones dealing with some sort of issue. And it's definitely demoralizing. But when, when it comes to talking about it, guys, one, deny that anything's even wrong. Even a lot, a lot of times when guys do have to resort to things like medication and, and or testosterone therapy, guys still at that point still assume that everything's fine. So it's amazing how, how well we try to protect ourselves against uh, any acknowledgement of, of, of something not being right. And unfortunately, you're 100% right that most of the time it's not uh, their fault. It's nothing they're doing specifically. And, uh, and that's something that actually kind of plays into how we treat our partners as well uh, as our function starts to diminish. Now, are there things that like common causes that you see a lot in your practice where it is stemming from, whether that's from food or pornography, maybe do you ever get cases like that? That's related if they watch too much or is it like, what do you typically see in your practice? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's again, this is a huge range of different uh, mechanisms of, of injury that could potentially lead to tell functional deficit is actually a better term. Uh, I don't like to use erectile dysfunction because it's, kind of gives you the impression of all or nothing. So erectile functional deficit, I think is a better term that should be used more often. But when it comes to the source and, and, and how it all happens, there one is mechanical injury, whether we're wearing harnesses or riding bicycles or putting pressure anywhere in underneath the groin, underneath the testes on the bones that sit at the bottom of our pelvic wall there. So, so anything that any riding motorcycles, for example, getting kicked in the groin. So contact sports, uh, soccer injuries, things like that can definitely injure uh, the circulation uh, as it exits the, the pelvic floor and uh, or the blood flow that exits the, the pelvic floor and cause up scarring and, and restrict how well we can push blood into the tissues. So that's one way of injury. Another way we can injure the tissues is through uh, just progressive chronic vascular sclerosis or injury to the blood vessels through just years and years of, of of lack of exercise and poor nutrition, atherosclerosis, which is uh, the, the, the development of those plaques and, and debris that gets caught up in the arteries that, that stops the artery from opening and closing the way it's supposed to. And I feel like that's probably the biggest cause of, of most of the injury that happens with, uh, with respect to men's erectile function. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that evolves over a longer period of time. Other times, other chronic diseases can also stop our body from healing as well as they could, or as they supposed to, as well as uh, promote the the inflammation or the injury uh, in the blood vessels that can cause scarring. So another form of erectile dysfunction is called Peyronie's or disease or or scar tissue that gets built up in the penis, physically blocking arteries and uh, actually a lot of times causing a curve or a bend in the penis or preventing the penis from working altogether. Uh, oh, and so then the third type of yep. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was gonna just say for that. So a curve in a penis could be resulting from this type of disease. Uh, absolutely, and it usually huh. does. It's usually a process that happens very slowly and very progressively over time, and one of the arteries on one side of the penis ends up kind of being more diseased or injured in some way, and slowly starts to diminish the blood flow, creating more scar tissue on that side, and slowly creating a a progressive curve that gets bigger and bigger over time. Uh, and oh. then you usually don't re realize that this is actually happening because it's such a slow progressive change. It's easy to just accept that's something that's always been there. And sorry, you were going to mention the third one, but that was so interesting. It's good to know. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, there's a few examples in the human body where we actually, where, where physical changes are something that we completely overlook and, and assume that we've always been like that but that's for another topic. So the third, uh, the third type of cause of dysfunction could also be pharmacologic. Uh, we take certain medications that, uh, that can, one, interfere with our ability to enjoy sex, commonly cardiovascular drugs. And, uh, and again, there's certain chronic diseases that can also promote the, the destruction of our vascular system and, then, and therefore worsening of our erectile function, especially diabetes is one of the biggest ones. Uh, so 
Yeah. So as you can see, there's, there's tons of different ways in which we can, uh, we can impact our erectile function. And, uh, and it's important to, you know, talk about these things, educate ourselves and, and understand uh, how that's possible or how that comes about. Now, if there was someone in front of you that may be struggling with a little bit of denial on this, is there advice that you could give them right now on like tactical at home things that they can work on? So, well, if you're, if definitely, if you're in denial, then you're, you're probably not looking to to work on anything or improve <laughs> anything but one of the best ways to actually appreciate whether there is a decrease in function or if we're not functioning as well as we used to is really thinking first of all thinking back to when we were younger thinking back to when we were 20 years old what our erectile function was like then uh, situations in which we could function under you know under the same sort of situations we're in, in under now that where we may not perform for example under intoxication or alcohol a lot of times, you know, when you're younger, your erectile function is strong enough where you can still maintain your function and, and do well. But as we get older, especially under alcohol intoxication, we often lose that capacity to, to maintain our erections. And then we blame the alcohol or that we're tired or that we're stressed out, right? More specifically, paying attention to morning erections. Morning erections are something that happens to us naturally. Uh, we actually support to get erections throughout the night. That's part of the body's uh, way of resetting itself. So when we start to lose those morning erections and those nocturnal or nighttime erections, that's a real indication that maybe we're losing that erectile function or we're not maintaining it as well as we could. Yeah, so that's so that's one really easy way to look at it. And again, if we're ever in a, in a situation with a partner where we start to lose our erection in the middle of uh, intercourse or, or all of a sudden, you know, we're not rock hard, that's already uh, an indication that something that we're losing the energy to maintain that erection, right? And that, and the source of that is usually our vascular system. But that must be quite an effect on someone's mental health or how they feel in the relationship. And is there advice that you could give to someone about their partners? Like, do you ever are you are you in a situation where people will say, "Is this like the partner's fault, like my fault?" Or you don't get that. Yeah, no, it happens all the time. In fact, it's it's something that I have to bring up with guys more often because guys will never admit to blaming their partner for not, you know, for being functional. But every time I bring up, you know, uh, the idea that that you know maybe it's not their partner's fault or or start the conversation like, hey, it's easy to blame your partner, and I always kind of get, you know, that kind of yeah, okay, you're right, I do kind of blame my partner, and it does happen a lot because you know it's and it's it's a multi there's there's several different variables that contribute to that. One is that when we're with the same partner for a long period of time, we inevitably do get used to that partner. So the, the psychological stimulus the, that we get from our brain, the, the, the anticipation, the excitement, so that kind of starts to go down a little bit naturally. And so if we don't keep things interesting in the bedroom, we kind of lose that spontaneity of it. So that's one of the things. But also understanding that it, it is the vascular component, it is the blood vessels, it is the arteries of the, of the system that are starting to, to not function as well. It's not as much the psychology as much as it is the the, the vascular health of the of the penis, right? So it's important to 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 appreciate that. And again, uh, like you mentioned, well, how does that play into the the psychology of our partner? Well, a lot of times our partners will start to come up with our, with their own ideas of why we're not functioning as well as we should, or why we're you know we're not interested on a particular day. You know, is it really stress, or do we have someone on the side, or or we you know are we cheating or or, you know, there's, there's a huge range of, of ways to justify uh, something when, you're, when you don't have all the information, right? So, uh, so a lot of times our partners will end up coming up with their own ideas and explanations for why we're not as interested or why we're not functioning as well. So absolutely, it's important to include our partner in that conversation and, uh, and be open about what's actually happening. Uh, every time we try to hide something from our partner, inevitably uh, ends up blowing up in our face, I think. We all kind of know that, right? So being actually open and, and being aware that that our erectile function is something that we need to pay attention to ourselves can also be something that could be a bonding experience for you and your partner, right? Absolutely. And I Instead. think it's steps to remove this type of stigma and shame from it. It's a big one that this is more common than I think people understand. And it's because of the unwillingness to be vulnerable about this, because there is some pressure, I think, on men to maintain this standard when it comes to sexual performance. And so it's even difficult to open that conversation up in that space. Yeah, you're 100% right. It's inevitably linked to our masculinity and our 
our capacity to, you know, bear children and things like that deep, uh, deep down inside and subconsciously. So, so once we start to kind of lose our grasp on that, it's, it's very easy to, to lose motivation and self-confidence and, and completely change the way you, you, you perceive, you know, yourself and, and your relationships around you. So if we can understand that it's not our fault, that it's nothing we're doing wrong, that it's something that we can do something about in a, in a, in a positive way, then it's, it, it's, uh, it's, it's very building, self-motivating and, um, and uplifting for sure. Absolutely. Well, my biggest key takeaway is that you actually should be having morning wood. That is, if you don't have morning wood, that's like a telltale sign that you should Absolutely. go check out for someone like you, like go check out your office. Cause that is an important indicator of your health there. hundred percent. I think you're right. That's if, if you're going to look at any kind of factor, um, that morning wood, if you're not getting it every day and if, and, and, and if it's not solid hard for, you know, until you have to go to the bathroom or have a hard time going to the bathroom because it's still so hard, then um, yeah, then that's a, that's a good indication that something's not right. Absolutely. Sometimes even partial morning erections are, are, are you know, are nice to have, but again, if it's, if it's not a solid erection, then chances are we're not getting that, that circulation that we used to anyway. Okay. Well, that was great and very insightful. Now we're also going to be talking about prostate issues. So I could come back to again of like, what is a prostate and what does this do? <laughs> Another great question. Absolutely. Uh, the prostate has a lot to do with our erectile function as well. But another thing that the prostate does, or, or really specifically what the prostate does and what it is, it's a very specialized muscle that sits just below the bladder. And it also is connected to our uh, testicles, which produce our semen or sperm. And so there are two little sacs called the seminal vesicles, and they store semen. And those are located just above the prostate. So the prostate is a very specialized muscle that one helps propel urine out of the body. So once the, once the bladder opens and we start urinating, the prostate actually stimulates uh, urinate, the urination stream. Uh, so, uh, so it's important for that, as well as ejaculation. When we ejaculate, the, uh, the seminal, seminal vesicles empty and the prostate propels that sperm out of the body. So those are the primary two functions of the prostate, pretty much. Well, I've heard uh, one statistic where it was men should actually be ejaculating often to clean out those ducts. They compared it to like just cleaning out, like getting the old come out. And then I'm not sure if that's true. I'd like to hear your opinion. Yeah, so I, I definitely have a strong opinion about that. And yes, it is very important. Uh, the reason why I feel it's very important is because our sperm actually has one of the most toxic enzymes uh, just underneath the, 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 the surface of the cell of the head of the sperm. Uh, it oh, wow. has this very, very toxic enzyme in order to be able to penetrate through uh, the ovum, the egg, um, in order to fertilize the egg uh, in the uterus. So, so we have this very toxic enzyme that's just kind of sitting there waiting to uh, just explode and, and just pretty much eat through whatever it can uh, to get to where it needs to go. And yes, if we, if we don't use, uh, if you don't use uh, stimulation or, or self-stimulation, even to kind of clear those pipes out once in a while, um, then some of those, some of that semen can start to degrade and start to release that, that toxic enzyme in the tissues. So uh, a lot of times guys also forget that, especially after we ejaculate, it's important to go to the bathroom. Uh, this is something I was taught when I was a kid as kind of a general kind of, you know, father son thing. But uh, my dad always told me, you know, if you ever ejaculate, make sure you go to the bathroom. And that's actually really important because what happens is again, when we ejaculate, most of the sperm comes out, but then we trap some of that sperm in our urethra, in our, in our, in our urinary tract, in the urethra and around the prostate as well. Um, and again, when those, when those, uh, when that enzyme starts to become released from the sperm, it can actually cause a little bit of damage in our, in our urinary tract. That's why sometimes if we, ejaculate and not go to the bathroom for a while and wake up the next morning or whatever, go to the bathroom. It can actually sting. Actually can, uh, urinating can actually be kind of painful. And that's because those, uh, that sperm, those sperm that are got stuck in there or got left over in the urinary tract started to create a little bit of that inflammation, that damage of the, of the, uh, urinary tract. So wow. That's an interesting one. I have only, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I've only heard that, I guess for like women, like pee after sex and things like that, this would be the first time I've ever heard the explanation for a male to go to the bathroom after ejaculating that's 
Well, that's important. exactly it. So yeah, it's a, and, the, and the reason is slightly different for women is because the urethra is very short. So you definitely want to wash out any, any potential bacteria that are sitting around there or it might actually get into the, into that short little urinary tract for women. Uh, that connection between the, the vagina and the, the bladder is very short. So yeah, much more easy for women to get uh, infections for, for that reason. And so for men, because we have such a long urethra, the risk of urinary tract infections is a lot lower in general, but we have to worry about the sperm. So that's kind of what, that's where we, uh, that's where the urination from men comes in. So yeah, that's absolutely interesting. So what would happen, like what type of health issues would arise from prostate issues? Uh, I think one of the most common issues that men deal with these days is prostatic hypertrophy or enlargement of the prostate. Why this is happening so often to men, it's, uh, it could be a variety of, of different things. One of the things that I think has a lot to do with it is our urinary habits. Now guys stand up to urinate very often. And so what happens is we end up constricting the urethra or the tube that comes from the bladder uh, through the penis. What, if we constrict that tube, then we're also forcing the, the, the prostate to work harder. When the prostate has to work harder, it starts to grow. Um, so that might be one of the mechanisms. Poor circulation. It could also be one of those things that, uh, that contributes to, to the prostate changing over the course of our lifetimes. Um, it's a very active organ. So over time, it, inevitably, it, it starts to wear and the wear and tear gets to it, especially when our nutrition is not perfect or best. And, uh, and again, you know, they say that, uh, within our lifetimes, men are more likely to, to get prostate than, than any other cancer. Uh, at the same time, it's, it's the least likely thing to actually kill guys. So, um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of focus on keeping prostate cancer away, which is obviously important, but I think that if we focus more on preventative care and stopping the prostate from getting larger in the first place and going through all those changes and, and keeping it healthy, for the, for the course of our lifetimes, that's, that's probably the best uh, step we could take to, to protect our prostate. Uh, because once you've already got prostate cancer, I mean, then the best solution they have is cutting it out, right? Um, and, uh, and then that leads to a whole host of other problems, including erectile dysfunction and progression, a rapid progression, progression to erectile dysfunction. So, wow. um, so, so it's definitely something to pay attention to. It's definitely something guys should understand um, and educate themselves about and how to maintain their best prostate health. Well, before we just get into maintaining prostate health, you mentioned something about men standing while urinating. Are they supposed to be sitting or is this, is it? I, yeah, so I'm a, curious. <laughs> there's actually an interesting study uh, done in Europe where men that sat to urinate were classically shown to have much smaller prostates overall. So, so sitting could be protective for prostate health. Uh, oh, on the, wow. On the toilet, for sure. Uh, so okay, that's one of those so... things guys can take a look at. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And there's, and again, that's, uh, that has a lot to do with even like the clothing that we wear, uh, the underwear that we wear, everything's kind of restrictive. So as we, you know, as we're standing in urinating, we, there's a good reason to believe that we might be forcing that prostate to work harder than it has to. And, uh, and therefore kind of restricting flow and, and, and causing all those changes to happen with the prostate. So sitting down, you literally relieves all the pressure down there and allows guys to go freely without, uh, you know, making the prostate work uh, hard at all. Wow. That is good to know. Now, what would be some other benefit or sorry, some other things that men can do to, for preventative care? Yeah. So I think. I think nutrition, of course, is absolutely the most important thing. Uh, that would be a different topic of conversation, but there's there's a lot of misinformation about what food is good for us, what food is bad for us. It's really difficult to get the right information about nutrition and, and what it all means, where it all comes from, and how it all works. And, and that's the biggest factor when it comes to you know our overall health, not just our prostate health, but our erectile function and every, every other blood vessel in the body, including the heart and the brain and our joints. So, so absolutely nutrition is something that everybody should pay attention to a lot more closely and uh, specifically for prostate health, what we can do sitting down uh, again would be probably the, one of the best things guys can do, but, uh, but you know, there's, there's also other, other things like prostate massage that might also have a very positive impact on the prostate. So things like that might actually be very beneficial. And with prostate massages, I do think, cause I think men straight men can shy away from it. I think I was having a conversation with somebody before who was saying that just because you want a prostate massage and you can get an orgasm through that, 
It has nothing to do with your sexuality. There's just nerves there that can give you that type of pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the prostate is a very highly innervated uh, organ. There's there's a ton of blood vessels and, and a ton of little nerves that are going through that entire area. You have the seminal vesicles that are on the posterior aspect of the of the prostate as well. So when you're doing a prostate massage, you're also uh, massaging the the seminal vesicles, um, which which is uh, which is also helpful for kind of cleaning out the the cobwebs in there or the you know some of the sperm that might be trapped in there or, or haven't had a chance to uh, be cleared effectively and uh, and again you're also increasing the health of the prostate because with the massage itself you're taking out inflammation or swelling that might be there you're also inevitably checking for for irregularities in the prostate shape and size when when guys get any uh, when guys get a prostate exam it's usually just to see for it's usually just to palpate to literally feel the prostate through the anus to see whether there's whether it's the same everywhere or whether there's a little bump or or irregularity in the shape or or, or texture of the prostate and that's how they check for prostate health or prostate cancer so so by massaging the prostate yeah you're you're increasing blood flow you're decreasing the swelling there um, and and that's always uh, that's that's beneficial for for you know any part of the body right any muscle in the body if you massage it you're increasing circulation and, and you're helping that muscle stay healthy so yeah absolutely it's not a it's it's totally okay and and, and definitely has its uh, positive health benefits absolutely so in addition to nutrition you also work in a more holistic way to approach prostate health and uh, erectile dysfunction yourself and can you explain a little bit more about your shock wave therapy yeah absolutely so uh, shockwave therapy it's something that i a technology that i learned about uh, several years ago it's a technology that's actually been around for over 30 40 years originally this technology was used to treat kidney stones uh, to break up kidney stones using sound waves uh, it's called lithotripsy so the technology is is been around and it's been established for a very long time to be very safe it always actually shocked me how, how you can break up kidney stones inside the body by penetrating sound waves and they don't disrupt or injure any other tissues in the area. That would always, that always really boggled my mind. And, and it was really exciting for me because it definitely gave me the idea that there's other applications of this kind of technology that could be beneficial in the body. And so I started working with shockwave therapy for immense health reasons a few years ago and started to realize that if it has such amazing effects in men's health in, in, in scar tissue, in getting rid of scar tissue or Peyronie's disease in the tissue in the in the penis, as well as revitalizing and improving the circulation and sensitivity in the tissues in the penis, then it must have that same effect throughout the body. And so I started looking into it, and lo and behold, there was a ton of clinical research about this technology and how how phenomenal it is throughout the entire body, from joint injuries to muscle injuries to improving bone healing. Uh, improving bone uh, regrowth in certain situations. There's just a ton of different amazing applications for this technology. So obviously I, I wanted to stay true to men's health and, and open up a space that caters to men's health, but it's also a space that, that, that where I like to treat everybody for anything related to, to the body and how we lay down scar tissue. We kind of over time start to break down a little bit, whether it's our penis or our joints or our ligaments or, you know, our feet um, you know, sooner or later, we, we start to lose that function. And, uh, and this technology has a phenomenal capacity to, to release scar tissue, uh, loosen scar tissue in the body, uh, stimulate the body to produce new blood vessels, and, uh, and pretty much jumpstart the, the remodeling regenerative phase of the body. So, so that's why it works amazingly well. I pretty much devoted the rest of my career to working with this technology because of it's amazing potential to to help the body rebuild itself and therefore prevent the need for things such as you know pills or injections or or steroid therapies um, or surgery uh, you know in the worst case scenario wow through sound that is so cool sound actually <laughs> isn't that ridiculous that's amazing um yeah it's it's, it's absolutely phenomenal technology so as uh, just a little bit more about that as the, the sound waves, you can actually hear them. They're, they're little clicks. Uh, so they're audible waves they're mechanical energy waves, right? So ultrasounds and lasers, those are waves that kind of go through the body and, and bounce around and bounce out, but you don't really feel them. You don't really feel that therapeutic effect with shockwave therapy or acoustic wave therapy. You can actually feel the therapeutic effect 
in the tissues. As those waves uh, compress and pull on the tissues, they, they create a negative air pressure or tiny little pockets of, of negative airspace form, little tiny um, uh, cavitation bubbles form. And these cavitation bubbles collapse and release the energy that then creates a, a tiny little bit of tissue damage or, or microtrauma. Uh, the, the, the cells themselves release chemicals that, that stimulate blood vessel growth and remodeling of the local area where the, where the technology is released. So it's, uh, it's absolutely phenomenal technology. And uh, I'm surprised that, that our system, ha- our medical system ha- hasn't uh, accepted it as, as well as it should be accepted. It's, it's got the potential to replace uh, a lot of different surgeries, uh, for example. So it's, it's, it's absolutely revolutionary technology. And I'm sure this will be more standard within the next 10, 20 years. Uh, than it is today. Well, I absolutely, I do find that it comes to sexual wellness and sexual, just in general, there's a lot of sexual sabotage and it often does stem actually from the medical field when it's more predominant on medications or injections or those type of things, as if that is the ultimate end goal. Like this is the only way that can help you. And when you start talking about more holistic things that can help you, some people can be, it takes a little bit to warm up to the idea. Do you find that People have to warm up to the shockwave therapy with your practice. Oh, absolutely, it's uh, it definitely sounds kind of fluffy. It sounds like it's you know it's uh, just a magic wand you're kind of waving around and hoping for you know the placebo effect to kick in. So absolutely, it's it's something that people have a hard time wrapping their head around and, and why and how it works or whether it's it's a real effect or just a a passive effect. But it, I think the best way to 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 combat that is to continuously tell people to look online for themselves. Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's just a huge data bank of of clinical research in every database uh, around shockwave therapy, uh, from from orthopedic surgeons to urologists to 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 statisticians, dermatology um, publications. There's there's a ton of different clinical research that that shows how this technology works. And the, again, the only limitation to this technology working is really how well our body heals itself. Um, and unfortunately, because we all slowly kind of disrupt that capacity to heal throughout our lives, we no longer rebuild our body ourselves as well as we should or could. Um, and that's why in my clinic or, or my rehabilitation center, the most important thing is educating everybody about nutrition, because that really is the foundation of how our body works, why it works, and why it heals itself so well. So we're able to give people a different perspective around nutrition, hopefully help them maintain their overall health much, much later into their lives. And with shockwave therapy, are able to really jumpstart that healing process that gets us back and functioning the way we need to as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Well, is there like any type of foods that someone should stay away from? just off the top of your head, like a couple of examples or some foods that do promote good health for this? So, I mean, this is a, this is a huge uh, conversation and definitely there's a lot of conflicting knowledge out there, information about what nutrition really means and what the best things to eat are, what, what we should stay away from. But based on my clinical experience, my theoretical medical knowledge, the countless hours I spent in the healthcare system, the hours and hours upon which I tried to put it all together and figure it all out, make sense of it all from the genetic code to protein synthesis, to how we use those proteins in our body, the environment, those proteins need to function efficiently in our body. Again, how we use oxygen at the end of the day, all those things really contribute to what's good and what's not good to eat. Um, and unfortunately there's a lot of things that we eat in the North American diet, uh, namely, uh, animal products, really, at the end of the day, an overconsumption of animal products anyway, that uh, that significantly uh, affects our vascular system throughout our lives and leads to a lot of those negative changes that uh, propel the development of chronic disease, erectile function deficit, joint disease, heart disease, and, uh, and a lot of other uh, autoimmune and chronic diseases states that, that we deal with. So unfortunately, there are you know, we're now we're kind of at the point where, well, we're told about the keto diet, the carnivore diet, the pescatarian, pescatarian, pescatarian diet, right? Vegetarian, vegan. Um, there's, there's so many different ways of looking at food. 
but at the end of the day, the, the knowledge I have really points at getting the majority of our protein from plant sources, plants being the, the original source of all proteins that are made in, in our environment in the world, uh, right? Animals are just the, the middleman. So cut out the middleman and just get those essential rich protein sources directly from plants and and everything starts to function better. We start to heal again. We start to function better. And, uh, and that has a big impact on our overall ability to maintain our health and, and, uh, and, and not depend on the healthcare system for pharmacology or interventions, which uh, seems to be ultimately the goal of most of, of the things that happen in, in our healthcare system is to uh, guide us down a pathway of, of pharmacology. And then when the pharmacology stops working, intervention or surgery or injections yeah. or, or something else. Right. Um, and, and absolutely the, uh, it seems like the pathway for, for, for men's erectile function is exactly the same way. Uh, when guys are really young, you know, we start to pop that blue pill once in a while just to get us going, just to make sure we, we perform when we, when it really counts. And, uh, and even though we know we shouldn't take it or do it very often, we kind of, you know, assume that, you know, it's great because it, we work very well on it. And, you know, by the time we realize either we, uh, stop taking it and don't work as well as we should and then are embarrassed to, to even try or or we start taking the pill more and more often to the point where we're dependent on the pill. Uh, and then when we want to switch from the pill to something else, well, then the only thing left are injections, right? Also like directly in, injecting with a needle, oh. uh, something that dilates your, your blood vessels to get you going uh, for, you know, for that short period of time. And, uh, and again, there's a lot of side effects associated with both of those options. And when those run out, you start producing scar tissue in the penis, and then you end up having to get a surgery to get the scar tissue out or more injections to try to get rid of the scar tissue. So it's <laughs> really it a vicious going circle. And going and going. Yeah, it just, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So uh, being aware of other options out there, things like shockwave therapy, things that can help us potentially start healing again, like our nutrition, those are all things that are very critical for, for everybody to really appreciate. Uh, and that's why we're here. Uh, we want to help people get that knowledge and, and hopefully lead healthier, younger lives. Uh, you know, absolutely. Now you mentioned something about the blue pill of not taking it very often. Is that something that people should actually not be taking all the time? Uh, the blue pill is something that nobody should take ever at all. Ever. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely not something that, that we're meant to consume. And as soon as you mm -hmm. start taking it, you're, you're changing your body's own ability to, to function and produce those energy molecules and to, and to use them when they need to. So as soon as you start taking the blue pill, it can, it becomes kind of a chronic and toxic cycle that you kind of end up falling into uh, one, because you don't work as well when you don't have the blue pill. So automatically right there, most guys are going to be depressed or sad about that. Um, even though they know they shouldn't use it all the time while well, they obviously don't function as well without it. So it becomes something that's very easy to start falling back in, into uh, and again, about all the misinformation about men's health and, and men's erectile health, really easy to do that because there's really nobody else to talk to. Uh, and yeah. if you go to your family doctor or if you go to a physician or a, a lot of these men's clinics, that's, that's kind of what they'll, uh, that's what they'll promote. Um, and a lot of times if, if shockwave therapy doesn't work, that's the next thing for them as well. We'll just do the blue pill and then we'll just go down the right or down the, down the line, you know? So it's, uh, in my opinion, I think shockwave therapy is a therapy that should work every time. And if it doesn't, then there's a lot we can do to help it work. Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of, that's where we, that's where we kind of uh, set ourselves aside is uh, we, we try to make sure that we figure out why the body's not healing and, and figure out what we need to do to get it healing again. Absolutely. Well, this has been incredibly insightful. Is there anything else that you'd like to add in regards to rectal dysfunction or prostate issues? Yeah, I guess, you know, one of the little things that a lot of people are wondering about is, is uh, you know, are there any risks or side effects associated with shockwave therapy? Can something get worse? Well, the truth is that uh, it can. Uh, but the only way that uh, your body won't react to shockwave therapy, again, is if your body isn't healthy enough to heal from it. And sometimes when people have diabetes that's not controlled or chronic diseases or taking certain medication uh, that prevent uh, your body from healing, then shockwave therapy can actually produce uh, some scar tissue. So, so it can actually have the opposite effect. And again, that's why it's so critical to have a very detailed conversation with people about their overall health and uh, risk factors re related to their overall health 
and uh, and making sure we mitigate those things uh, before we start shockwave therapy. Uh, oh, so there's so yes, like definitely. Sorry, sorry go I was going to say there was so there's some things people really need to put themselves in a position before they do shockwave therapy. A hundred percent. It's not. Uh, it's definitely not a therapy that you just kind of jump in, get a couple pulses and then and then you're good to go and and unfortunately that's how a lot of a lot of shockwave therapy is being provided these days it's usually by the physiotherapists or you know these men's health clinics that literally just do erectile function but a lot of times they you know it's, it's easy to miss information it's easy to overlook things and then just you know put your hands up and say well, well sorry it didn't work it doesn't always work and i mean that's uh, the you know that knowledge is there we know that uh, through the clinical trials that are that are out there uh, is that doesn't always work. But again, I think that if we address certain things in our overall health and, uh, and appreciate why this therapy works and understand why it works, then we can usually mitigate all those factors and actually get this therapy to work. Um, but not only that, make sure that we stay healthy throughout our lives as well. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's also a lot of external things that could influence, whether it's environment or just our toxic, like things and toxins, even our household cleaning products, like all these little things that affect day to day that people maybe overlook or they don't realize anymore. They do have a in profound impact on your health and so many other avenues. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when it comes to the nutrition our overall habits, our social, cultural background, uh, there, there are so many different things that, uh, that we need to pay attention to. Absolutely. You know, to, from, from riding a bike to, yeah, absolutely. You're right. What we cook our food on, where we get our water, things like that. Uh, those are all important. Uh, those are all easy to forget. Those are all easy to, things to, to kind of ignore, uh, assuming that, uh, you know, whoever's in charge it, it really takes care to make sure that we have the things that we need for, for our survival and for our well-being. But, you know, I feel that if we need to all start to pay attention to what we need ourselves for our well-being and take charge in understanding what that is, because nobody else is going to make that decision for, for us. Absolutely. And I think that people really should be aware of some of these things are they are business like whether we want to say it or not there are a lot of pharmaceutical things out there that are just you know a business mindset and when you mm -hmm. look at it it is in our best interest to take hold of our wellness especially when it comes to our sex and i do feel that there's misinformation about sex in almost every avenue every field everything so it's just taking accountability mm -hmm. and responsibility for our individual self yeah, I mean, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. If you want to have the conversation about, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry and what role they're playing, I mean, you know, it's, it could all, we're all speculating here and we don't actually know exactly what they're doing, how deep it goes or how much money they, they provide for, for lobbying and, and things like that to, to control how, how we take care of people in the healthcare system altogether, right? Um, from the, the type of food that people are given in the hospitals to, to the treatment pathways and algorithms they use uh, in the hospitals that physicians use, you know, to to progress a patient through the healthcare system. You know, all those things, all those things are, are I feel, something that we as a as a as a medical community need to look at more seriously and and start looking at it more pragmatically uh, from a from a clinical and health perspective rather than a monetary financial perspective, because most hospitals even. Uh, are run by people who have never spent a single day, you know, taking care of another person, right? Most hospital CEOs are people who have never spent a day actually caring for somebody else's health. So mm -hmm. how can these people make uh, important decisions about how we run hospitals and, and why and how we take care of people, right? Uh, so so there, there needs to be huge reform in our healthcare system and how doctors are paid, you know, the the billing system itself prevents doctors from actually educating people about preventative care because there is no billing code that pays doctors enough to educate people about preventive care. Mm. Right. So a doctor cannot sit there all day educating people about preventive care because they won't make any money because there's no way they can actually monetize that. Right? Wow. So, you know, perhaps if, if, if doctors were paid by proving that their health, pop that their population is healthy, you know, by, by, by showing that their patients are, have a clean bill of health every year and they don't need to depend on the healthcare system, that they don't need to take medication. Maybe that's when doctors should get a really big, uh, you know, <laughs> bonus at the end of the year from, from the government. For getting right? a healthy just, patient. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Keeping your patients healthy. Here's a bonus of a hundred, $200,000. Go have yeah. fun. You know, you deserve <laughs> it. You know, instead of, well, here, let's just keep you on medication. 
let's put you on more medication. Let's put you on more medication. So, oh, too bad. Now you have to go deeper into the rabbit hole, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there's a lot that we can do with respect to the healthcare system and, and absolutely, uh, you know, big pharma, you know, they're like the 10th richest economy in the world. I think if you look at all the countries with the GPA or uh, the, the, the pharmaceutical industry is, is up there in the top 10. So wow. they have a ton of money, a ton of resources to contribute to, to medical care throughout and, and medical lobbying throughout the world. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Um, they support, they support uh, companies that produce food um, that's not necessarily healthy for us. It just keeps going and going. So yeah, we have to look at, we have to look at the pharmaceutical industry as, as a company that really just wants to make money and we'll do whatever yeah. it can to make money. And I guess you can't fault them for that. But it unfortunately is at the expense of of everybody else and their overall health and and uh, and capacity to enjoy their life and and, and lifestyle. So and the importance that's of the unfortunate truth. Yeah, sorry to cut you off there. I was going to say it's important that people really look at holistic avenues at, with more open mindedness and the ability and willingness to do a little bit of their own research before um, just taking what is you know, this is good for you and without really doing the research because it's not true. Yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, the, the other problem with the research as well is that there's all these same companies that, you know, that want us to consume the wrong things and have a mm. poor nutritional lifestyle. Um, they're also the ones that are producing a lot of the research. So, you know, for, for people who didn't grow up or, or, um, or were specifically educated to dissect and analyze research or, or research articles or clinical research, um, really won't know what to look for and how to actually identify whether this clinical research has the right conclusion, whether the objectives were met, right? Whether the, the statistical significance of the data holds up the way they're explaining it. A lot of times media will take a conclusion from a research study and kind of just twist the words a little bit or take it out of context. And then everybody just runs with it. So so there's just, there's so much misinformation out there and there's so little regulation around how and why publications are, are, are allowed. You know, you can have, you can publish a study that presents a bunch of data that really has absolutely no conclusion and, and still publish it based on, you know, the criteria that are outlined. So it's, it's difficult even when, you know, when you want to do the research to, to find the right information. So I think when I, it, although it, is, it really is important for people to find their own research, the, the number one thing that I try to tell people when they want to do their own research about any subject is to always try to prove yourself wrong, right? Mm -hmm. look, for, look, for, look for proof against what you think is true. So for example, if you think, you know, plant-based food is good for you. Look for evidence where they can prove to you that plant-based food is bad or that, that it's, you know, that it's not, that you can't get everything you need out of plant-based food, uh, right? That, uh, or, or for example, if you think that, you know, flying airplanes is un unsafe, um, right? Try to prove the opposite that, you know, that, that taking something else is more safe than, than airplanes. Um, you know, always try to find ways of looking around the subject, not directly at what you, you want to prove, because if you really want to prove that, you know, flying is unsafe, you can drive yourself into a rabbit hole where you look at plane crashes all day and then mm. you'll definitely believe it's unsafe. Right. So, so it's really easy to, to get misled and misdirected and misguided when it comes to clinical research. So always look to prove um, the alternate, the opposite as, as a way of kind of regulating the bias that we usually kind of end up following when we when we look for proof about something well that's very insightful to your point it's even outside of the medical industry like i know um i was reading something about kellogg's when it first came out with cornflakes it was actually promoted for men not to masturbate and the food itself and their low nutritional value was actually to discourage men from masturbating by dr kellogg's and it goes into graham crackers. I, I will be doing a podcast on this actually in a couple of weeks. So yeah, it's just so, even the food that we have, like there's so much around just sex control and sex education that we have or don't receive or do receive. So mm -hmm. this is all important. Oh, hundred um, percent. Yeah. I mean, like we're told guys are told that if we don't eat meat, that we're going to be, you know, that we're going to be weak and, 
and we're not going to have, you know, we're going to, we're not going to be able to, to perform. And we're kind of led down that, like that lack of masculinity idea, right? That if we don't eat meat, we're not masculine enough, for example. And that's absolutely not true. There's countless studies that have showed that men who consume a whole plant-based diet actually have better erectile function, more frequent nighttime erections, stronger morning erections, and better ability to maintain erections throughout intercourse. So, so, you know, so it's the opposite. If you, if you, you know, if you think about uh, the best environment for procreation, the best environment for life, it's usually an environment that's rich with plants. Right. And, and that's how our bodies react to a healthy environment. When we are healthy enough to procreate our body is more sexually, more sexually uh, active uh, we're more likely to engage with partners. Our partners are more likely to engage with us. But when we're living in an environment that's low in quality of nutrition, it reflects a low quality of our environment. And therefore, we're less sexually active, less likely to engage in sexual activity, uh, less likely to, to enjoy it, right? Uh, less likely to uh, be able to make children, be less likely to maintain a pregnancy. If, we're, if our nutrition's off, there's a whole host of different... Uh, you know, uh, uh, health issues that pop up that stop us from being able to procreate effectively. So absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing how food plays a role in, in kind of in, in our sexuality as well. And, uh, and overall health. And, and again, it's, uh, it's no, no, no wonder that, you know, companies are trying to play into that way back and, and trying to kind of influence how we, what we eat to, to, you know, <laughs> to play an impact on that. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anywhere that my listeners can come find you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our website is phoenixrti.com and uh, Instagram uh, by the same name, phoenixrti, one word. Uh, they can also find us through uh, by calling us at uh, 647-533-3565. And you are based out of Ajax, just for our and listeners, Ajax. Ajax. That's right. Uh, Salem Road, uh, just south on the 401. Okay, and wonderful. We welcome everybody who, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but we're, we're happy to, to, to invite everybody to come in and have a conversation about nutrition. If you have any questions surrounding men's health or overall health, um, any kind of questions you may have around the healthcare system and, uh, and, and, and ways in which to kind of navigate the complex architecture of our healthcare system, I'm more than happy to have those talks. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, for our listeners, I will see you next week. And for everyone, make sure to check out Phoenix RTI. Okay. Thanks, Dana. Uh, I had a great time chatting with you. I'm so glad we had this conversation and hopefully uh, it helps everybody out there get a better perspective around our overall uh, health and men's health and sexual health. Absolutely. And as usual, we'll see you next week. Stay kinky.